Hello and welcome to Private Practice Podcast. Hello from Daniel P. Brown. And I am, as you're all all too aware, James Hall. And you're probably also all too aware of my wonderful time in France, my flowing in Paris, walking and listening to podcasts, um, just my fantastic life and how I go on about it. You might remember also that in previous episodes, I've talked about people less fortunate than myself in various degrees of facetiousness. And you may also have picked up that the book seems to present the ideas as some kind of luxury activity for someone who has plenty of time and resources. All of this is going to be addressed in today's episode. Excellent. So it's like a confessional. This chapter of the book is called Cheating Chaos. Mm, Sounds like fun. And it starts with, um, well, it actually starts with quite a good sort of manifesto. So I'm going to read that out in full. Then uh, people who have transformed disabilities into flow activities. Lovely. Coping with stress. Mm -hmm. Do you know anyone who's stressed? Everyone. Good. We're going to look at dissipative structures. Dissipative structures. Uh, We're going to look at trauma and flowing, I would say, after... Yes, flowing after trauma. We we started talking about that last week, didn't we? Uh, Yes, and didn't I basically answer that by saying I went to Montpellier or something like that? I think you did, yeah. yeah. (laughs) I'll try and give a better... You you talked about your struggles... (laughs) In your Airbnb in Montpellier, and I think that you were comparing them to child abuse, but I can't quite remember. I definitely wasn't comparing them to child abuse. That was uh, the story of the teenager who had a sexy legs prize at his high school. No, no, no. I I distinctly remember you saying that you had got over your traumas after I was explaining how it might be a lot more difficult for people to flow if they'd been through child abuse. Yeah, I got that completely wrong. Exactly what you Mm -hmm. just said. Mm Mm-hmm. So we'll address that today. Okay. Um, the autotelic self does not need to be healthy, rich, or powerful as a summary. Mm-hmm. We will also revisit the here and now from a previous incarnation of this podcast when we were mm. when we when I was obsessed with the author of Love Sex Acutioner Irving Yalom. Oh. Who and he introduced me to the the idea of the here and now, which is relevant to therapy, uh, both sort of like Jungian Freudian therapy, but also mindfulness, Buddhism, etc. And all of that is relevant to flow. So we're going to be tying up lots of loose ends today. Mm-hmm. So this is the penultimate chapter in the book, is it not? Yes. So are you pretty excited? Obviously. You look excited. In terms of this season, we are one rung away from maximum complexity. Whoa. (laughs) Except that complexity ladder goes on infinitely. Your own personal complexity just finishes when you die. And that's assuming that we're not in some kind of simulated reality where death means that it's like taking off the headset and just moving into another alternative reality. But I'm not going to get on to complex conversations about consciousness or 
uh, free will or any of that because that's for next week. <laughs> Cue the theme tune. Private practice podcast. So, James, introduce the chapter to us. Cheating chaos. Hmm. I've been giving increasingly long quotes. This is this is. I'm going to read an entire paragraph from the book. I really don't like it when I hear people reading things out on podcasts. Okay. But this is a sort of manifesto for the whole book, really. Okay. So, it starts with, despite everything. (laughs) Actually, do you want to read it? Yes, no, this is what we can do. You read down to satisfying the first paragraph. From the first word? From the first word down to satisfying. Are you sure? Yes, it's quite a lot. Yeah, it is a lot. But if it's too much, I can edit it out. So if you take a proper pause in between, after every full stop. I could do that, couldn't I? And then I will read from Needless to Say. Wait, so you get the punchline? Yes. <clears throat> Despite everything that has been said so far, some people may still think that it must be easy to be happy as long as one is lucky enough to be healthy, rich and handsome. I mean, I'm two of those things and hopefully I'll be paid this week. But how can the quality of life be improved when things are not going our way? When fortune deals us an unfair hand, one can afford to ponder the difference between enjoyment and pleasure if one doesn't have to worry about running out of money before the end of the month. For most people, such distinctions are too much of a luxury to be indulged in. It is okay to think of challenges and complexity if you have an interesting, well-paying profession But why try to improve a job that is basically dumb and dehumanising? And how can we expect people who are ill, impoverished or stricken by adversity to control their consciousness? Surely they would need to improve concrete material conditions before flow could add anything appreciable to the quality of their existence. Optimal experience, in other words, should be regarded as the frosting on a cake made with solid ingredients, like health and wealth. By itself, it is a flimsy decoration. Only with a solid base of these more real advantages does it help make the subjective aspects of life satisfying. Can you summarise what you just read? Yeah, basically, you would think that if you're healthy and wealthy and have everything you need, a satisfying job, then yeah, flow is that kind of thing you can add on top that makes life all that better. Whereas if you're disadvantaged, poor, unwell, sick, or or, or you have too much stress and too much difficulty attaining the basic things in life, then flow is just something that you wouldn't be useful. It's not something you can access. It's not something that's there for you. Needless to say, the whole thesis of this book argues against such a conclusion. Subjective experience is not just one of the dimensions of life, it is life itself. 
Material conditions are secondary. They only affect us indirectly by way of experience. Flow and even pleasure, on the other hand, benefit the quality of life directly. Health, money and other material advantages may or may not improve life. Unless a person has learned to control psychic energy, chances are such advantages will be useless. So, everything, everything I have said so far mm-hmm. about flow comes directly after spending a month in Montpellier. And we have a listener, and his main criticism is, I had a month in Montpellier, a month. Real people don't have a month off. I had a nice little building to myself. That costs money. Who has money? Basically, he's claiming, it's all right for you, James. You had money, time, books. I I can't speak for someone who doesn't have those things. Most people don't have those things. Everything I say is therefore invalid and irrelevant to most people. They have no means of knowing if they can find flow listening to me talk about my month in Montpellier. I'm just alienating most of the world with my self-obsession. And it sounds like I am just very privileged and had a lot of fortunate situations coming together for me to find flow that is totally inaccessible to most people on the planet. There's two arguments there. There's, There's two points there. One of which I agree with him on, and the other one I don't. Well, I absolutely disagree with him, both on the practicalities and on a fundamental level. So what are your disagreements and agreements? Well, well, the the idea is that the only way to find flow, or the way that most people can find flow, um, and I've got a problem with that as well, that either of you can either say that most people are like this or most people are like that. Everyone's different, and everyone deals with their individual conditions differently um it, it, it's about you and the way you found flow and i don't know that you're saying to everyone go to montpellier spend a month of introspection that's that's not what you're saying you're talking about how you did it so whoever um you know whatever our listener thinks about your way of explaining that in a self-indulgent self-obsessed way that doesn't mean that other people wouldn't be able to pull out some of the concepts that you're talking about and be able to find flow if they were to listen to the podcast. It also doesn't um, separate from the fact that whether you listen to this podcast or not, no matter what conditions you're in, you can still find flow. It doesn't matter whether you have heard it from James Hall and his privileged position of... of um, uh, you know his upbringing and his his luxury and his month and his his freedom and his his resources that that's irrelevant that's not what the podcast is about it's not about you um and so therefore that's that's not right but i also fundamentally disagree i fundamentally would say that most people are able to and probably do experience some kind of flow or flow in some kinds of activities no matter what their background or what their upbringing Okay, so one of my disagreements is almost exactly what you said. So having a month in Montpellier, having being able to afford that with money and time, uh, having my books and having just my whole life up to that point is not a prerequisite for flow. I think there is one technicality to do with um, emotional intelligence, which we'll come to in this episode. So put that aside for a moment. None of my resources in Montpellier are prerequisites for flow and as we've looked at earlier on in the book um, 
the people who survived concentration camps during the Holocaust, uh, who found flow in those concentration camps. Uh, people who, in this chapter, we look at people who've lost their sight or have lost a limb or something, so they've become disabled. And rather than, what's the opposite of improving? In what context? Rather than the opposite of improving their life, it has improved their life because they have turned their... De dis denigrating from their existence? They've turned their disability into a flow activity because it's a new challenge to try and uh, understand the world uh, without your sight, for example. And in the chapter, Mikkeli, Chitson Mikkeli goes through the the same um, building blocks of flow that are in every chapter, how you find flow and you can directly place the model of understanding the world anew without sight at the beginning of a flow diagram with many rungs ahead of you for really enjoyable experiences that make your life more complex. So there's that. None of my quote-unquote privilege is a prerequisite for flow. So as far as I'm concerned, the argument is over. But there is something else and oh, by the way, I do really appreciate this listener's feedback. So whilst we're trashing it at the moment, or not trashing it, well, we're, we are considering it quite a lot and responding to it, but it might seem like we're, we take some audience uh, feedback and immediately just trash it at the start of the next episode. Uh, if, the, if there were to be a second listener, maybe, and they're thinking, oh, I'm a bit put off sending in my feedback, if they're just going to read it out and trash it next week, this listener feedback, uh, has definitely been a contribution to making this episode more complex and is therefore a fundamental aspect of me finding flow in the process of preparing this episode and therefore I welcome the feedback and I think it has made this episode much better than it would have been if we just ploughed on. But my other disagreement is that in some of the things that were mentioned in our listener feedback about... Let, let me just read uh, a couple of comments that this person said, just to give some context. He's talking about the luxury of flowing when all your mental energy is taken up by simply surviving. Apply it to a lesser extent to the life and mental state of anyone who is not a privileged, middle-class, white person like yourself. I'll come back to that in a minute. And he says... Do you really, in capitals, so here he is shouting at his headphones, do you really not get what an incredible privilege it is to actually do that? Talking about the Montpellier thing. Not just in terms of money, although also very much in terms of money, but in terms of things like caring responsibilities, the emotional education to be able to actually distinguish and name your feelings, the very conception itself of introspection. All of these things are not a given, again in capitals, not only are they not a given, people who can afford to do that are not even the majority, not nearly. So firstly... Uh, so, so just to pick you up though, so, so our listeners not suggesting that there's a tiny minority of people that can do it, which is what you seem to be suggesting to begin with, that it was just for the elite. He was just saying that it's not the majority and he's getting the idea that you're suggesting that all people have the 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 luxury to experience flow in the way that you did he's <clears throat> he's saying that i'm assuming that flow is easy and i don't recognize how lucky i was to have the month in montpellier that's totally out of reach of normal people and i'm not normal do you think flow is easy 
No, that's another thing that I'm going to come to because I've written down, in fact, I've typed up and printed out, flow is not and should not be easy. But he, he referred to me by my skin colour and that's completely irrelevant. So that is a... Um, like saying that I'm privileged because I'm white and therefore it's easier for me to find flow. I'm wondering whether, despite reading vast chunks of the book, <laughs> we haven't really explained what flow is. If if you would think that skin colour would come into it, 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 it couldn't come into it. Because it, it's not dependent on how others are viewing or, or behaving around you. So, for example, you are a young black guy who is um, in a sales workplace. So it may well affect your opportunities and your chances within the workplace because of the colour of your skin. But it wouldn't affect necessarily how you experience flow in that workplace. So a young white guy in prison, it wouldn't make... It wouldn't necessarily be more easier or more difficult to experience flow in prison than it would be for someone with a different skin colour. Because flow isn't about an ongoing experience with all of the different factors of life. It is about, in the moment, doing something and giving yourself a certain... Um, a certain challenge, giving yourself a certain focus, giving yourself a certain uh, momentum to be able to do any activity. So whether that's reading a book, having a conversation, is he saying that because you're white, you can read books and have conversations and uh, someone who's Asian or someone who's African can't read books, can't have conversations, can't do sports, can't sing, can't knit, can't sew, can't play chess? Because that's not true. But, but I think what, what, what he's taken exception with is the continuous harking back to a beautiful flat in a beautiful place paid for with money. And that's a perfectly valid criticism. It is, and I'm wondering whether <laughs> the argument that you've spiralled into in this ongoing feedback is, has turned into a loop rather than about flow. And I'm wondering whether, therefore, we have focused more on you then on flow <laughs> I think that's likely and so trying to address that in this episode I think the the whole idea of flow in this book totally throws out the window what I think is a pretty idiotic view of the world whereby in, in order to assess a person you look at their skin color their sexuality their social class their whatever, you look at all these things and you determine who is uh, the most uh, privileged and who is the most disadvantaged. I think that's absolute rubbish on a fundamental level and I think it's totally irrelevant to flow because all of those things have nothing to do with your ability to flow as you just uh, laid out and therefore they are not prerequisites they are, if you're talking on a scientific understanding, they're not variables that interfere with flow. It makes no difference. If, if you experience... It doesn't matter if you're black or white. Yeah, but if you experience a lot of racism, or even if not you, but your uh, previous generations have experienced racism for 
you know, you hear stories within your family going back at least a century. And it doesn't matter how much more than a century it is. What I'm saying is you hear stories of your parents and your grandparents um, and maybe your great-grandparents, specific stories about them facing racism. Mm -hmm. Uh, That can lead to, I think, I I don't know, I'm not an expert in this, but that can lead to sort of like, um, what do you call it, trauma passed on through the generations, delayed trauma, there's a term for it. There is. Is it um, inherited trauma? Something like that. And... So that is how it's relevant to flow, which we'll come on to in this episode, to do with your state of mind. If if trauma is so severe that you essentially need CBT as an emergency measure, and ideally you'd have therapy, but that's the expensive thing, but at least you can get CBT on the NHS, that is an, I would say that is, we could argue that is an obstacle to flow. If, if, you, if, you, if you basically can't function due to mental disorder, and I mean disorder as in literally not order. Uh-huh. Um, Chaos, then, you might say, well, exactly. if we're referring to the chapter. Uh, that That is the first, and I said this last week, that's the first thing to address before attempting to try out flow experiences, flow activities. Um, and the other thing that I, that, we, that, that I said that we would look at as a potential issue in, uh, as a prerequisite of flow is emotional intelligence so being able to know what a thought is know what a feeling is recognize and name feelings our, our listener is claiming that there are lots of people who simply can't do that and therefore they have they've missed lesson one in flow and they, they have no way of catching up that's not that's not what flow is about i mean you might have an advantage if you were someone who like the listener said already had an understanding of words like introspection and mindfulness and um and was able to explore your own thoughts because you might then be intrigued by the concept of having more uh access to peak experience and you know prime experience and enjoyment and pleasure but we, we've given examples in uh, or the book gives examples in in you know, throughout of experiences that, you know, might be considered almost mundane to someone where you can experience flow. So, you know, if you are a cleaner and you want to experience flow in your work, you can. And it might be more difficult if someone who's a cleaner also is has a lot of stress and a lot of pressure and a lot of worries, of course. But that doesn't mean that they weren't, wouldn't still be able to. They don't have access to experiencing flow, even in the mundane. It's not about having the option of being the ballerina or the chess player or the mountain climber. That isn't what it's about. It's about turning what you do into an activity that you can seek, you can, uh, sorry, gain reward, enjoyment and pleasure from. So, yeah, I, I don't think... On the whole, perhaps someone with extreme or perhaps someone with, you know, severe learning disabilities might not be able to experience flow, but not necessarily. Um, Basically, flow comes down to that diagram that we refer to every single week. So someone with learning disabilities has a whole load of challenges in their life. And if they have an autotelic personality, um, it will come naturally to them. They don't even need to learn this. 
but if they don't have that personality naturally, um, in order to find flow experiences, they'll need to experiment with trial and error at how to overcome the challenges that they face because of their learning dis disability in order to uh, enjoy the things that they're doing in the moment, the being present and paying attention to what they're doing and getting the most out of whatever it is. Um, so it could be their work, it could be their cooking, it could be any of the all the things that are flow activities, which is more or less anything. Um, so whatever your challenge is, and that's why there's the example in this chapter of people who've lost an arm or lost their sight. When we were when we were preparing for the episode, I was I was talking about people who've lost their sight as lost their eyes because my I wasn't entirely concentrating. But um, the uh, you can if you lose your eyes if they literally pop out. Um, and you are learning to understand the world. Born again sounds like born again Christian, but you know what I mean. From it's, it's like page one all over again after you've had the thirty pages up until this. Oh, now we're back to page one because I've just lost my lost my eyes. Um, you have to. You, you go through a process of as if you're a baby again, learning the world from from page one, and that in itself inherently lends itself to a perfect flow experience so if anything that person's uh, the chaos of having lived with sight and that's suddenly taken away from you the chaos of the world being turned upside down and nothing makes the same sense it used to uh, the way to find order through that is through the inherent flow activity of the challenge of losing your sight and re-understanding the world from that new perspective you are therefore if anything at an advantage for finding flow because Dan's making slightly oh really oh dangerous territory faces if you lose your sight if you become disabled as long as it's not the kind of disability that is so that is such an impairment on your life that it's the sort of thing that's in you know like Swiss dignitas legal cases whereby people argue that their life has no value and they just want to um, they want legal suicide because they, there is nothing in their life that they think makes it worth living that's not the case for someone who goes blind everything they all their other senses <clears throat> work music is still wonderful um, <laughs> they can still listen to this podcast what else do they need point made um so they their life is still enriched the difference is that it's without sight and that brings challenges and with challenge comes a flow activity and you map where your uh, abilities meet your challenges and you increasingly uh, try to improve your abilities so that your challenges so that you can tackle the more difficult challenges and you increase your complexity and you become a thoroughly flowing blind person who is able to walk around who is able to enjoy all their sensory inputs other than sight more than they ever used to who is able to even um, take eventually take on some people with a disability like to take on challenges the Paralympic Games illustrates that so you can you can yeah Dan's putting one middle finger up to the microphone you can the Paralympic Games basically are the the most obvious flow activity and well, to, to get to to work towards getting to the Olympic Games I guess is the is the the, the process of flow and of course you know the races and the competition itself is but, but this you, is an elevated form of complexity you start at the beginning of yeah, trying to yeah. 
deal with the world anew with a disability. That's what and I'm if, saying. And as you move up that ladder, you get eventually to the Paralympic Games, and all of that, all that entire flow activity is, let's say, gifted to a person with their disability. Okay. I, in me, James Hall in Montpellier, who doesn't have that disability, cannot experience the flow activity of appreciating the world without sight unless I keep my eyes shut all day. I mean, in fact, what, what you were saying, and, and I think perhaps the way that you have, you have spoken about yourself may have alienated at least our listener. Um, <laughs> Possibly you at times. <laughs> Despite the fact that you may have alienated the listener and perhaps others at times, you weren't describing doing something that was so challenging and so incredible and so life-changing for many people. Other people might be listening to it going, right, so you sat in a house on your own and felt your feelings. (laughs) And then once you'd felt your feelings, you you realise that you have a lot of thoughts... That, that get in the way of you doing things you enjoy, like, you know, smelling the coffee, you know, trying new foods. Walking. Walking. So other people might take the opposite argument to our listener and say, really, you, you needed a month on your own in a house to work that sh- out, you know? So, I mean, I can see that, you know, your manner and your style has, you know, like I say, alienated one listener our listener but um i think perhaps that is some some personal feedback that you could take on board james <laughs> i will enjoy the flow activity of doing so yes flow as i said is not and should not be easy because that completely contradicts the whole point the idea is that you are increasingly meeting more difficult challenges in order to make yourself more complex and to enjoy life more. So it has to be, if it's easy, you are therefore in the boredom field of the flow diagram and you are not in flow. Flow is inherently not easy. Here endeth. It is impossible for flow to be easy because you're not matching your ability and your challenge. You're in the boredom zone. Yeah, yet the... the difficulty of any task for any one person experiencing flow is different compared to that of the next person experiencing flow. Um, Another little tidbit that uh, outside of the book, this week I was listening to an interview with Bill Bryson, the author, and he was dropping in some sort of like mind-blowing facts. And one of them was to do with... um, taking your strand as the, a, a human being strands of DNA in their entirety and stretching them end to end. And he was saying you might think that it would go to maybe the moon or to, I don't know, to Sydney or something like that, but it would stretch all the way to Pluto. What's that got to do with anything? Uh, so that just demonstrates how complex a human being is because I think originally... Uh, <laughs> people assume that there that for all human characteristics there was a gene so like there's a ginger hair gene there's a gay gene and then as is it the genome project that has human um, genome project i don't want to go too much into i'm not a genealogist but are you not no oh i'm massively disadvantaged there i'm not a privileged genealogist i wonder whether the feedback that you got could have helped you not say that <laughs> 
Um, I'm not a genealogist, but... But if I was, but if I I'd was, recommend that you take your DNA and you stretch out as far as you can and see if you can get as far as Pluto. And if you can't get as far as Pluto, try harder. <laughs> um, but if I was a genealogist, I would say with even more confidence than this, <laughs> with even more authority than this, um, you, your, your characteristics are the product, are the product of far fewer genes in number than your characteristics and it is the interaction of different genes that creates neatly creates a dissipative structure that increasingly becomes more and more complex because it's like language in English we have 26 letters and they have as many combinations as it takes to fill the dictionary with words and then, with, and, and more, and more, and then with those <clears throat> words, we also add facial expressions and everything visual and tones of voice and all the other things that make your reading of the introduction sound to me quite flippant in this episode. Uh, whereas someone else could have read it in a very serious way. So that is illustrative of dissipative structures such as human beings, whereby there are, uh, language has letters which make words, which make sentences, and then you add to that visual things like facial expressions, body language, mm -hmm, etc. Mm -hmm. Humans have, apart from atoms and so on, all the laws of physics, but we have a small, a smaller number of genes than was originally thought when genes were new science, which is probably the case when this book was written. And as it became clear that there were fewer genes discovered than expected, so there isn't necessarily a gay gene. I don't know if I, that particular example. You're but, wearing pretty gay genes. <laughs> but um, all of these things are a product of combinations of genes that increase complexity and bring about characteristics that's how the complexity manifests itself characteristics in human behavior and um so on so that's a dissipative structure and that is wait i don't think you really explained what a dissipative structure was really there page 201 the power of dissipative structures he uses the example of plants rather than humans plants have found a way to transform wasted energy into the building blocks out of which leaves, flowers, fruit, bark and timber are fashioned. And because without plants there would be no animals, all life on earth is ultimately made possible by dissipative structures that capture chaos and shape it into a more complex order. Would you like to tell a nice story about mushrooms in your allotment? No. Well... At least you can relate to plants. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. Um, I mean, it depends what your um, your theory about everything is. You know, if you believe in God, you might not see it as what was the phrase? Um, wasted energy. Is that what it said? Yeah. So waste itself has connotations, but energy that doesn't turn into something useful to a particular organism spontaneously uh -huh. so it converts you know sunlight and warmth and and various different chemicals into growth 
So like this house, for example, has solar panels whereby we turn the sun's energy into electricity. The house doesn't just spontaneously create electricity by means of being in the world on a sunny day. It requires the solar panel, which increases the complexity of ah, yes, the, yes. The, the, this already quite complex housing development. Yes, okay, right. Yeah, um, yeah, okay. I kind of like the idea, though, that the whole universe is sort of one big organism so i don't necessarily see it like that myself but yeah okay but the universe is one big very complex organism mm -hmm, it certainly is with merely atoms as its component parts so there's no trouble with your world view in understanding <laughs> thank <this>. goodness <laughs> so if you think of the uni the entire universe as one big interconnected organism whereby mushrooms connect everything well they do as well that is made of the building blocks of atoms so all the complexity within that all the complexity of dan brown let alone your allotment and how the mushrooms feed nutrients from one side of it to the other regardless of that just you dan brown and how complex you think you are is nothing more than atoms and the laws of physics so that's that's how the dissipative structure is illustrated as a form of organizing chaos so all of the the chaos of Dan Brown, all the facets of your personality, the the things that you, um, you know, your negative emotions, your positive emotions, the things about your physicality and your health that are that you like and that you don't like, all these, all this chaos, is ordered into Dan Brown. Yeah, I like it. I'm wondering how it relates to... I'm, I'm confused as to how it relates to flow. I don't, I don't understand. Because flow is making order out of chaos. Yeah, so the chaos is you lose your sight. And the order is that you learn how to understand the world without sight. And you become more complex because you engage in activities as a result of that condition. Um, and so one person loses sight... Another person loses an arm. Another person loses a parent. All of these different forms of complexity start from a human in neutral mode who hasn't lost anything. And we take three ident let's, hypothetically identical twins, all in neutral mode. Three identical twins. <laughs> three identical triplets um, in neutral mode. Well, theoretically, one of them can't lose a parent and not the other. So uh, one of them loses a best friend in a car accident, one of them loses sight, one of them loses an arm, <laughs> all on the same day, Friday the 13th. So they started off as being more or less identical, but they're now very different in terms of their situation and their, the way that their personalities are going to develop. Whilst they started off as being basically the same thing from an outsider looking, they are now branching out into forms of complexity. One of them is learning how to see the world without sight. One of them is learning how to pick things up with only one hand. Um, one of them is learning how to deal with life after losing a friend who is not going to be around anymore. They all have various struggles and they all have the possibility to turn that chaos into internal order, which is a flow activity. Yeah, yeah. But it needs more than just the chaos 
it needs some kind of in those examples it needs some kind of support or training or teaching or framework in order to be able to turn well if you lose your sight you can have support and teaching framework or you can do it yourself by trial and error it's much quicker and more efficient and more whatever luxurious to have someone coming along and saying i'm going to help you through this i'm going to point you in the direction of books and um, advice and uh, tutorials videos etc mm -hmm. i'm going to introduce you to people who've gone through the same thing who will share their advice and you will therefore with all that information um, be at full speed up that complexity ladder because you, you have access to all that information if you're doing it by trial and error it's much slower so one another thing but you, you think both are still a flow activity whether you're doing it on your own or you're not well increasing complexity you can do it on your own or you can do it with other people i'm not in this instance i'm not essentially yes but i'm not looking at specific flow activities you can do them on your own you can do them with other people as we mentioned last week in the enjoying friends and enjoying family episode compared with enjoying solitude but are those activities necessarily flow activities you know the is those experiences of trying to regain sense and a place in the world um after you've lost your sight or an arm or someone you love yes I said earlier in this episode, so you've lost your sight. You have a challenge. You can't see stuff. You used to be able to see things and then you could make sense of the world from... You'd react to what you, to your sensory input of sight. You'd see something and react no, to no, it. No, no, no. It's a learning activity, but not necessarily a flow activity. You don't... Oh, no, I'm, well, that's what I'm getting to. You used to be able to understand the world through looking at it. Now that's taken away from you. You have to relearn the world by sound and touch and all your other senses. So... In order to relearn the world, you have a challenge. And on day one of blindness, it's anxiety-inducing because your abilities do not match that challenge. You can't tell where everything is by listening. Um, you're not very good at moving around without stumbling and falling over things that you can't see. You're in the anxious field of the flow diagram because the challenge is too much for your ability. So you have to take those challenges one by one. You have to slowly learn to pay attention to things that you can hear and you have to learn to pick out new sounds that you probably didn't pay attention to before. You have to pay attention to your audio field of consciousness in a more complex way that you never used to have to because it was compensated with your sight. And in doing that, that is an inherent flow activity because it's a challenge and you, meet, you, you break that down into something that you can tackle. Well, so, what about, but it, it doesn't necessarily become a flow activity unless you choose or oh, are yeah. able to engage okay. with it like that. Well, yes, in that case, you have to want, you have to have um, the desire to improve your blindness situation to the to, to live the best life it can be without sight but who wouldn't who would think i'm just going to lie in bed and let people bring things to me and i'm not going to that's it life <clears throat> is over i can't see anymore well, well answer that answer that question for yourself so if i lost my sight if right you now did, if you did yeah that's that's the point that that is i think the listener's point it wouldn't necessarily occur to every person 
to go right i need to i need to be able to do this how am i going to do this okay how do i challenge myself shit i can't even get over to the toilet right what do i need to do to get over to the top obviously we're making an assumption this person is completely alone someone who is completely alone might in a way you know not to be too extreme but just curl up curl up become depressed not move not be able to engage with it not even imagine that they life without it that's true okay that's the person but there's a crucial difference yes that is one possible outcome that you could just retreat curl up and eventually die if you if you like if if in that extreme scenario where you're on your own you have no human interaction like dorothy on her island she becomes blind and she thinks my sight was vital for quality of life now i've lost it i give up i'm just going to sit here and wait to die there's nothing worth living for without sight anything somewhere between realistic and that extreme example is a decreasing quality of life without the loss of sight lending itself to a flow activity acknowledged but the crucial thing is that dorothy on her island with no one to help her no books about how to turn blindness into a flow activity no podcast well she couldn't read the book but <laughs> no podcasts or anything helping her no braille books telling her how to turn blindness into a flow activity no help from the outside um, it's not inevitable that she will just curl up and be the one of the ultimate victims of life, the most unfortunate, dispossessed, unlucky, the person who shrivels and retreats mm -hmm. and does not flow ever again and retreats into anxiety, stress, depression, consistently worsening health, consistently worsening life prospects and then dies a miserable death. It's not inevitable that she will do that. It is possible that she has the genetic desire to survive and to thrive and that she will find, to use colloquialisms, not scientific language, she will find it in herself to take baby steps and learn through trial and error, bit by bit, what she can do to live without her sight. She will think, she will walk and fall over and she'll think, oh right, I can't just do that. I'm going to have to think about how I walk. I mean, this is just fundamental human nature. Like babies don't fall out of the vagina and think, well, this doesn't make sense to me. So I'm just going to give up. They, and then, and, the, and this comes back to attachment theory. They don't have, some babies do, but healthy babies don't have every minute of every day a parent standing over them guiding them through life they don't have a parent lifting their feet up and putting one in front of the other and saying here you go this is how you walk what happens is the parents in the kitchen cooking hoping that the baby is not setting fire to anything not poking its fingers in the sockets and that baby thinks what can i do um and the baby gets up and starts to walk and the parent looks around and thinks oh my clever little darling you're so clever you've learned to walk all by yourself that that is the, that's the baby that's quite literally the baby step so if you're blind and you have nothing to help you you can you have the ability to take baby steps to learn how you can understand the world from your other senses 
given that you can't see anything anymore. So the first time you fall over, you think, right, I won't do that again. I will maybe sort of like put my foot out gingerly before I put it down. I will see if I can find a stick and use that as a... It's, it's a good one, that. To map stick. out what's around me. They should use that one, yeah. 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 Maybe make them white. Mm-hmm. Um, so the other people can see them clearly and identify that the person mm-hmm. is blind. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I don't think I need to explain this anymore. I think it's fairly obvious that humans have the ability to learn by trial and error how to adapt to new situations. Humans are ultimately adaptive. Uh, what's the, I'm reading a book at the moment called Anti-Fragile. Humans are, if they are anti-fragile, they are very adaptive creatures, whereby life is tough for everyone to varying degrees, which means that there are constant challenges in life. Not even the most privileged Kardashian has a life devoid of challenge. Agreed. agreed. And so humans are adapted to deal with challenges. And if you become blind, it is possible to turn that into a flow activity. There is no one for whom it is impossible, even though some people might retreat into... um, What would you call it? Not turning it into a flow activity. Just whatever the opposite is, despair. Just by means of being a human being... Well, I don't know. What do you think? Do you think, why does the person retreat into despair and not turn it into a flow activity? And could they, left to their own devices? Or do they need help? Um, I think a lot of people would need help. Um, I think it would be the minority that wouldn't need help. Okay, so maybe I've just been talking about a minority and let's assume that most people need help. Is the help available? Well, it depends where you are, doesn't it? Depends on lots of things. Yeah, but it mostly depends where you are. Okay. Um, in London, the help's available. In Mogadishu, maybe the help's available. In rural Africa, in a lot of places, the community you'd rely on. In lots of places, there's probably nothing. All we can take from the book is that, as far as I can tell, is that Michley, Michley talks about the autotelic personality and someone with an autotelic personality doesn't need help. Someone in Mogadishu who suddenly becomes blind... No, no, no I, I don't think it's that they don't need help. I think it's that, <laughs> that they would be able to engage in the process of relearning everything that they once knew with sight or with both arms or having had that friend in their life who's now died. Um and obviously, like to a greater or lesser, lesser extent, you're definitely right. Most people will take on the challenge that adversity throws at them, even if there's a period of distress and trauma and depression and hopelessness. Um, but that's quite an extreme one, isn't it, blindness? Um, well, it's one of your five senses, which means you still have four after it. Mm, okay, right, well... I mean, I'm I'm not a particularly sort of like naively optimistic glasses half full the world is just wonderful fluffy bunnies and daisies and Mm -hmm. everything's great kind of person i recognize that most of life is suffering and that is uh, a challenge that is what makes gives life meaning by Mm -hmm. turning that into uh, complex flow activities as an example i think i really wish you'd have been speaking like this from episode one (laughs) i feel like the feedback could have been more positive about you. Yeah, okay. Well, okay. What would we on to next then, James? What are we on to next? Leading on exactly from where what we've just talked about, 
the integrity of the self depends on the ability to take neutral or destructive events and turn them into positive ones. I talked last week about Brexit. I found that a destructive event when it happened and I turned it into a positive one that was my Montpellier privilege. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> in each person's life, the chances of only good things happening are extremely slim. I don't think that's a controversial thing to say. Mm-hmm. The likelihood that our desires will be always fulfilled is so minute as to be negligible. Sooner or later, everyone will have to confront events that contradict their goals, disappointments, severe illness, financial reversal, oh. and eventually the inevitability of death. Oh, that one. And blindness would be, uh, what was it? Uh, severe illness, I could say. Hmm. Each event of this kind is negative feedback that produces disorder in the mind. Chaos. Psychic entropy. I'm not saying you're wrong. Yes, it's chaos. And it's chaos. Psychic entropy is the technical term in this book to describe chaos. So you become blind and your conscious space is filled with negative thoughts of, I can't see anymore. I used to like seeing, I mean, not literally these, these are rather silly, naive ones, but along this theme i used to be able to see now i can't see that's a bad thing my life is worse i wish i could see i want to see things i'll never see my partner again i'll never be able to enjoy all the things i've looked at i'll never see a painting again chaos chaos psychic entropy anxiety depression life is terrible i'm about to spiral i may as well just curl up in the corner and not turn this into a flow activity because my life is now tragic and there's no one here to help me and there's nothing i can do about it that is the depression, that is the anxiety. Uh-huh. And then they remember Montpellier. <laughs> so each threatens the self and impairs its functioning. If the trauma is severe enough, a person may lose the capacity to concentrate on necessary goals. So they stop eating, um, drinking, washing, they don't care about themselves anymore because they don't think that life is worth living. If that happens, the self is no longer in control. If the impairment is very severe, consciousness becomes random and the person, in quotes, loses his mind. The various symptoms of mental disease take over. In less severe cases, the threatened self survives but stops growing. So you might have been... uh, You hear stories of people who had everything going for them. They were uh, doing a degree in their free time whilst being an apprentice in a job with dreams of the future and making friends and being successful and having all these uh, wonderful, having a wonderful, fulfilling life. Mm-hmm. And then they lose <clears throat> their sight. And as far as they're concerned, that is a setback that is too difficult. And they quit the degree. They don't see their friends. They don't value themselves anymore. They don't see any worth in life. They just sit in front of the TV eating crisps and that's it. They just vegetate until they become overweight, in debt, socially reclusive and... So you do know the kind of example of someone that doesn't just zip into flow. (laughs) (laughs) So that's an example of the threatened self that stops growing. Cowering under attack, it retreats behind massive defences and vegetates in a state of continuous suspicion. It's for this reason that courage, resilience, perseverance, mature defence or transformational coping, the dissipative structures of the mind are so essential. So it is the mind as a dissipative structure creates the order out of the chaos. And if you have a mind, you can do that. Therefore, everyone can do that. But it doesn't come naturally. So it does take 
responsibility to turn things into flow activities. Flow activities are not spontaneous. I think some of the stuff we've been talking about today makes it seem like everything is a flow activity and your life will just flow because you're a human being. Mm. That's not the case. Uh-huh. Yeah, no, I disagree. I don't think that's what's been said at all. I felt like I, maybe half an hour ago I said something that made me think that was what I was implying. Uh-huh, okay, um, okay, okay. But, yes... In in response to that, the blind person can retreat or they can turn it into a flow activity. But the, the colour of their skin, their, where they're from, how much money they have, how much free time they have, all those symbolic things have nothing to do with the flow activity because a flow activity is not a symbolic goal. There's no symbolic goal. It's a it's a constantly it's the ladder that keeps going up. Extending, constantly extending. It's, it's the constantly extending ladder whereby you aim to increasingly match your abilities with new challenges to make yourself more complex. That's what the flow diagram is. It's inherently not easy and it's inherently not spontaneous. I I think I may have said that if you become blind you're given a flow activity of learning the world and yeah yeah you, you did so that's what i'm addressing now maybe i said that and that could have you're given the opportunity in a way um as difficult as it is and as traumatic as it is to to turn everything that you're learning into a flow experience but you don't necessarily do that just because the opportunity is there but you can but you can. And I think that's where I, I, I think we can say you can simply by means of being a human being because the brain is a dissipative structure. No, you can't say that. Why not? Because it involves capacity and it involves um, a level of cognitive ability. It involves a level of awareness. Not, not doesn't have to be huge. We've already mentioned um, people with moderate learning disabilities. But if you have profound learning disabilities, or such as dementia, or, or profound mental illness... No, I disagree with the dementia one because I watched my grandma deteriorate for about <clears throat> a decade until she, was, she died just before she turned 100. And I watched her in states of total chaos whereby nothing in her world makes sense and she's in the extreme anxiety field of the flow diagram because she she doesn't have the ability to take on the challenges of life because everything is confusing to her and she doesn't know why. I've seen her in that anxiety and I've seen her spontaneously uh, turn it into flow by ordering things. She used to get bits of kitchen paper and rip them up and she would line them up on her on the table in front of her and she would you would see her obviously go from um, screwing up her eyes and showing all the, the, the body language of anxiety and relaxing into the calmness and the concentration of her world, concentrating on what's in front of her, what she's doing, and she just spontaneously turned that into a flow activity with a mentally degenerative disease of which she had no control. Yeah, yeah but, but you said that simply by being human with a dissipative mind you would be able to experience flow i'm saying that there are times when you can't and there'll be millions of people with dementia who cannot do that trust me okay um but that is a very good example of even in the most profoundly disturbing uh, experience dementia people can find it but that doesn't mean 
that simply because you are human and you have dementia and you, you have dementia you that will you be change. able to yeah okay. um and and also with like extreme profound learning disabilities you know um quadra quadriplegia with um with blindness with epilepsy with um non-verbal not able to 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 set yourself any not having the language not having any kind of physical control over your yourself not having any control over your own thought processes in the same way from what i can you know this is an this is an external observation i do not know that this is 100 percent true but my assumption would be that to experience flow in a state whereby you have no control would be incredibly difficult if if at all possible if if not impossible i found ways no one taught me this this was just me looking at what was in front of me and making educated guesses of helping my grandma get out of states of anxiety and return to order again so for example when she uh, when she assumed that my mum was my lover and she was confused be because I refused to kiss her, as in romantically, um, or, or various things like that. She was, she I'm did... confused that you <laughs> refused to kiss her romantically, James. <laughs> yes, having successfully seen the death of my father satisfy that Oedipal urge, why yeah, haven't I yeah. followed it through? I know, right? But I, I didn't. I've I managed mean, you, to... you do look like Andy Murray, and well, <laughs> your mum does love Andy Murray, so... I managed to control that aspect of my id successfully well so Well done, you. That's been a flow activity since puberty. Not sleeping with mother, tick. But um, so my grandma no longer knew that I was her grandson and that the other woman on the other side of the room was her daughter and therefore that woman was my mother and all this sort of thing. She didn't know that anymore. Uh, she just saw two human beings, male and female, and she was kind of obsessed with matchmaking all her life. So one thing that was kind of uh, was a was a, a type one Daniel Kahneman thought process was male and female maybe they'll love each other can i bring them together and mm. she didn't understand that that was having weird results because she didn't understand that she was trying to match her daughter and her grandson so in those situations if i were to behave in what might or might not but i'm going to say might arguably be the predictable way which is to say no grandma i i'm your grandson james that's your daughter anne remember your daughter Anne, you gave birth to her in 1951 in Montreal. Remember, I'm your grand. That just increases the disorder and the chaos for the person with Alzheimer's. They they Wait, don't. Does your mum have a Canadian passport? No, but she could have. I don't know. It's totally irrelevant. It's not that irrelevant. You could have a Canadian passport. I don't know. Okay, continue. Telling her I to say to her, remember me. I'm your grandson James, and that's your daughter and that doesn't help her she can't remember these things and mm. what she's seeing in the world right now is male and female and what she what her impulse tells her to do is match them romantically because that's in her personality it's the fun thing that she's always done her whole life she's always tried to match people up yeah so what did you do so i would assume her reality was fact i would assume that that was a, either my lover or a potential lover in the room <laughs> And I would not, I would not make love to my mother no. in order to deliver this reality. I would come keep up, your gran happy. I would come up with 
ways that I knew would amuse my grandma without contradicting her worldview uh, as to why we weren't kissing. So I'd go up to her and I'd whisper, I'd say things like, no, I'm really irritated with her today. She has been driving me crazy since dawn this morning. But don't say anything. It's a secret between you and me. And I'd say some funny secret. And my grandma would giggle and it would make perfect sense in, according to the rules of her worldview, whereby we were two strangers who could be lovers. It didn't contradict her worldview. It gave her something that she could understand and that she could giggle about and it even made her feel in a, in a world that was very confusing where she couldn't have have those emotional connections with people it made her feel like she had an emotional connection with someone because I was whispering her, in her ear uh, funny secrets and she felt like that was I presume she felt like that was an emotional connection with another human being like mm. she would she'd always had before the Alzheimer's so I'm not saying I'm a saint. What I'm saying, well, maybe I am. Well, but what I did in that situation was try to um, try to empathise and to understand. And to, and I look. I could. I had more than enough data input to show that contradicting her worldview made her more anxious. It was obvious that everyone else in the room was correcting her all the time. And every time she was corrected, you could see from her body language she was getting more and more agitated, more mm. anxious, more into the anxiety field away from the flow channel of the diagram yes. and I without having read this was years before I read the flow book I looked at the situation the dissipative structure of my brain uh, took the information and mm. um, created order out of that complexity by working out how to solve this challenge knowing that the wrong thing was to constantly correct her because that just pushed her further into anxiety I decided that she's turning her worldview upside down causes anxiety. I will do the opposite. I will reinforce her worldview and... I mean, it's logical, isn't it? Yes. So there you go. So that's an example of taking baby steps and guessing your way into the flow channel. And it's also an example of someone achieving flow with a mentally degener degenerative disease. Mm -hmm. um, and one, before moving on to anything else in this chapter, one last thing that I would like to say mm -hmm. in relation to this idea that some people are more privileged to be able to achieve flow than others, mm -hmm. i.e. it's all right for me in Montpellier, but it's not all right for my grandma because she has a degenerative illness, therefore she is disadvantaged and I'm advantaged. I have privilege, she has victim status she is the victim of a disease a life a d lifelong degenerative disease with no cure she's a victim yes the whole concept of being a victim saying that i have privilege and it's all right for me to flow in montpellier but think about someone who has a degenerative disease my whole example i've just given th this is what we've been talking about how my supposed privilege is not a prerequisite for flow and the degenerative disease is not an inherent obstacle preventing flow um, but not only that, if someone feels, if someone is made to feel like they are disadvantaged because they've lost their sight, if they're mollycoddled too much, if they're, if they're made to feel too much like their loss of sight is a massive disadvantage and that everyone in the world with sight has a privilege and they are you know at the bottom rung of the intersectional Olympics as it's referred to sometimes do you know what I mean I know what you're talking about yes they uh, well okay I'll say this and then you say it in a way that you'd prefer it to be said which I would like I'm asking you please do that mm -hmm. um, 
someone who is made to believe that their blindness makes them part of the dispossessed in society whilst everyone else with sight has privilege and is further up the you're saying, level you're of saying success. That you're, you're, if you believe that you're a victim of whatever um, fate has become you, whatever obstacles have been thrown at you, if you believe you're a victim, you're less likely to be able to succeed in finding flow. You're less likely to be able to overcome those obstacles. So I would add just one word, much less, severely less likely to, over, to find flow and overcome those obstacles. I mean, reading between the lines, you're saying that mollycoddling people into allowing them to feel like victims rather than empowering them to see the opportunity is denying them the autotelic self, denying them the ability, to, the satisfaction of overcoming a challenge themselves, which is the flow activity. Essentially saying that someone is worse off because of their skin colour, because of their disability, because of their sexuality, because of where they're from, because of how much money they have, reinforcing that they are somehow part of the disadvantageous, um, dispossessed, um, yeah, uh, class uh, at the bottom <clears throat> of the. Yeah, I think there's scale. a balance. So there's a balance between understanding the difficulty that someone is going through, and allowing them to feel the feelings that they need to grieve for whatever loss or for whatever experience has has put them into a mental state that means that they feel like life is unfair. They feel like they have been personally attacked. Not allowing them that is not the same as putting someone in that position. You know, um, so I know that some people who have been victims of sexual assault go through a period of kind of mourning and depression and sadness and anger and guilt and then come out the other side of it and don't think back to it. But other people go through that and are traumatised and are unable to. To say to that person, thinking of yourself as a victim, fuck you, you should just get on with flow. You should now use this new experience that you have I did. Look at me. I spent a month in Montpellier and just because you were raped, it doesn't really mean that you're a victim. Get on with it. Um, so, yeah, there's somewhere in between that, you know, kind of allowing for someone's but hold on, you've just given emotional that, journey. You've just given the silly example at one extreme. If I, if I now attempt off the top of my voice as a first draft, it won't necessarily be clever or funny as a first draft, but I'll try my best to do the opposite yeah. caricature um, oh, you are the most disadvantaged of all. You're a woman, so the world is geared against you with sexism. You are such a victim that everyone else is better off. You are the worst off of the worst off of the worst off. You're basically beyond help. You're so superlatively worst off in life. Uh, you, are, you are so disadvantaged that life could not be less fair to you. The world is so unfair and you are the shining or non-shining example, the dull example of how supremely unfair the world is. Everyone else has privilege and you have just been thrown at the bottom of the pile with the trauma of being raped. That person with that attitude is given more disorder in their uh, outlook of the world than if they received whatever suitable amount of sympathy, whatever suitable amount of practical advice to mm. help them get through it, whatever suit whatever appropriate form of therapy that empowers them and doesn't victimize them, 
in order to get them onto the bottom ladder of the flow diagram and then with with their capacity at that point they can gradually take the baby steps to move up the flow diagram and who knows one day they might be a hugely successful ted talking inspirational role model of I was raped and there's nothing I can do about it but I didn't let that ruin my life I've turned that into the stimulus to make my life the best it can be and look at my inspirational life and I flowed through all of it and I'm an inspiration to you all and hopefully one day you will listen to my TED talk and find something in it that inspires you to be better than you are today yeah yeah, I mean, to me, that goes without saying. I'm not 100 percent sure why you shoehorned that one in, though. Like, you well, know, because that, you, you, but no, no, no. About... But you brought in the idea that, you know, um, overemphasizing someone's distress via their status as a victim. Like, I'm not sure where that came from. Like, you, you suggested that this is something. What is this something that people do a lot of the time? I suppose in with well, my role and my job, that's not something that I do. Yeah, but if you look in... Although my brother seems to think that's exactly what I do. If you look at... Well, if you just look at that comment um, about it's all right for me finding flow because I'm white, that is reinforcing to a black person that they are less likely to find flow because of centuries of racism, meaning that they are a victim of white superiority in culture. Therefore, they feel like, well, how the, 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 if, if, you, if you reinforce the idea that their skin colour makes them a victim of oppression in society, then how is that helping them in their life? It's probably not. That I am now a white person telling the world that... I'm, I'm predicting the next feedback. Uh, white person tells the world, stop complaining about centuries of racism and oppression, pull up your socks and start flowing or something like that. <laughs> okay, well... What else was on my list? I feel like... I feel Just like... the here and now, that's the only thing really okay. left. Would you like to introduce the idea of the here and now, paying attention to the present, being mindful, just what that means... Um, again, I think this could, you know, this is something that you can learn if if it's not something that comes naturally to you, and it's something, it's something about being able to manage experiencing stress and experiencing distress, um, and obviously it's very popular and it's very um, accessible if you have an iPhone or a mobile phone, a smartphone. Um, Absolutely not an iPhone. That's the most expensive for the privileged millennial elite. You can get the cheapest phone if you that have has 3G phone, you or whatever that yeah. allows you... I mean, or a book from the library, and you can join the library for free. But mindfulness and being in the moment is about not thinking about the future, not focusing on the past, whether it's the glorious past or the negative past, not focusing on anything other than what is going on around you right now and uh trying to enjoy that moment or at least trying to experience the quality of that moment and um you know it's it's the the, the basis for mindfulness which could be a meditation or it could be a kind of a therapy it's the basis for taking yourself away from stress and de-stress but also taking yourself away from excitement and future hopes and dreams and daydreaming and ambition and just looking at 
what's going on right now feeling seeing hearing touching tasting what's going on right now and it enables you to kind of uh, ground yourself or be in exactly where you are and finding that mental state whether it's for 10 seconds or for for 10 minutes in terms of flow would enable you to then experience whatever activity hopefully you wanted to enjoy doing next or you needed to focus on next and wanted to get a positive outcome from so being in the moment is about taking yourself to where you are recognizing all of the different qualities of your senses recognizing all of the different thoughts and emotions that might be running through you and trying to sense them accept them and then let them go in order to just give yourself a kind of a neutral state so that you can pay attention to what's happening in the moment yeah if because otherwise you're you're paying attention to your thoughts in the past and the future and therefore you're not in the moment yeah but but paying attention recognizing what they are doesn't necessarily mean engaging with them in an intense way which might either cause distress or excitement it's about finding a kind of a neutrality a a moment of calm you might say in order to then pay attention to what's going on in the present maybe i said maybe i jumped in too early but, but, but in order to pay attention to what's going on in the present you need to clear your conscious space of thoughts of the past and the future and but, all the but feelings in and... essence that is what's going on in the present that in that moment if you're having thoughts oh yeah okay so that's in the mo that's in the moment of the, that's for the duration of meditating being mindful all the rest of it and then mm -hmm. at the end of that let's say you're cooking a meal and the the, the, the hopeful consequence of that mindfulness is that you will enjoy cooking that meal, pay attention to everything, turn that into the most flowing activity it could be, as opposed to half cooking the meal, half flicking your phone, putting the TV on in the background, yeah, uh, worrying yeah. about your job, worrying you're too unattractive. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it gives you a it gives you a neutral space with which to then enjoy what you are choosing to do next or to be able to experience what you're doing next and that's the that principle which is why i asked you to explain that is fundamental for the whole of the rest of the chapter wait you, there's no rest of the chapter there cannot be any rest of the chapter this that is such a perfect moment to end on that that going anywhere else now is is the destructive begging for chaos to come back into this podcast Okay, well, in that case, can I just limit myself to one art-related metaphor? Absolutely, that sounds beautiful. The process of discovering new goals in life is in many respects similar to that by which an artist goes about creating an original work of art. Whereas a conventional artist starts painting a canvas knowing what she wants to paint and holds to her original intention until the work is finished, an original artist with equal technical training commences with a deeply felt but undefined goal in mind, keeps modifying the picture in response to the unexpected colours and shapes emerging on the canvas and ends up with a finished work that probably will not resemble anything she started out with. So throughout the entire process she's engaging with what's in front of her now, not the thought she had at the beginning in the past about the outcome that she wants in the future. Um, she is engaging in the process at every stage and not being distracted. Um, 
if the artist is responsive to her inner feelings, knows what she likes and does not like, and pays attention to what is happening on the canvas, a good painting is bound to emerge. On the other hand, if she holds on to a preconceived notion of what the painting should look like without responding to the possibilities suggested by the forms developing before her, the painting is likely to be trite. And when we record this podcast, we have a vague idea based on the chapter of where we're going. But if I dogmatically stick to it and make sure I get everything into the episode and make sure the episode at the end is exactly how I predicted it would be at the start um, and rigidly stick to it anxious that I'm not going to get everything in um, anxious about the lack of preparation in the past and the disastrous outcome in the future when I edit it I'm not in the moment I'm not engaging in the process I'm not enjoying it I'm not in flow so when you say this is a perfect way to end I'm not going to think about anything we may have left out or anything else that might be in the chapter I'm just going to look at the present and look at happy Dan with his sort of like you're not cross-legged but you've got your arms together and your hands in that sort of like two palms together peaceful everything is calm and serene Mm -hmm. body language and I'm going to acknowledge that that is an excellent way to finish the episode yeah I like that idea the the artist or or the gardener going out into the to the garden with an idea and not sticking to it in too fixed a way um but going out there and enjoying the brush strokes or the or the um or or, or the cuttings or the or the digging and and at the end of the day looking at what they've done and 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 finding the beauty in it yeah at least that's what i heard you just said and on that note of calmness and serenity in the moment let us cast our minds only briefly to the next episode in which we're just going to fight and argue about free will (laughs) Uh, and from the private practice podcast studios in london it's goodbye from me daniel p brown and from the same private practice podcast studio in london it's goodbye from me James Hall. And did I mention that I spent a month in Montpellier having a wonderful time and achieving flow because I'm such a privileged white male? Private practice podcast. It's a wonderful story.